This is the DMU Works Enterprise Podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from DMU Works Enterprise and Entrepreneurship. We are the team at Montfort University looking after student and graduate enterprise and this is our latest podcast. My name is Simon and today I'm going to be joined by a very, very special guest. His name is Yancy Strickler and he's a writer and entrepreneur. He's the founder of something called the Bento Society. Look that up. An absolutely fascinating uh, set of uh, ideas and uh, practices and methods that you can use in your work. He's also the co-founder of something called Kickstarter, uh, which is a pretty major. Kickstarter, of course, the world famous uh, crowdfunding platform. Aside from that, he does all kinds of workshops as well, and he's written a book called This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. We are so pleased to welcome Yancy Strickler to today's podcast, and I caught up with Yancy a little while ago, much earlier, earlier on in lockdown, and I started by asking him whether, you know, given his background and his achievements, whether Yancy himself had ever actually gone through any formal enterprise training or education. Uh, zero. I, I had, um, no, I, I had no experience in, in business or, I mean, my, my stepfather was a small business owner, mm-hmm. um, but I had no, I had no experience until Kickstarter. And, and it was in being a couple of companies before that, that were a little younger, more, uh, less mature that, you know, let me be more than just a worker bee inside an organization. But my, but really my introduction to entrepreneurship was Kickstarter. Wow. So, and even as a child, so there was no sort of behaviors or anything that kind of demonstrated which way your life might go. No, I mean, as a child, all I, all I cared about was um, reading books. I mean, I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere. I, I like would, you know, would do work on the farm some summers, um, but largely I just read and just sort of dreamed of the larger world. And in high school, I developed, you know, when I was a teenager, I developed a, a dream of moving to New York City um, and to be a writer. And that was largely based on movies and books, you know, and, and feeling like that was a, a place to land. And so I was, you know, I was always sort of trying to develop myself as a, and my first career was as a music critic, as a music journalist, Um and so, you know, that, that was the world I thought about was being, it was being a creative person, uh, being a writer. And the first really up until I was 28, I would say almost all of my life was focused on that. And then when I was, when I was 28, I, I met, made a new friend, uh, this friend, Perry Chen, who had had this idea for crowdfunding a couple of years before. And we started working on it together and, and, and I felt like a, creative person being almost almost like being a class uh, betrayer of the career of creative people by going into business. I felt very uncomfortable with it. Uh, and it took years for me to really own it and, and, and feel comfortable being an entrepreneur and feel comfortable um, being a business person who happened to come from this other world. Uh, but for a long time, it really felt like I felt like a fish out of water, a lot of imposter syndrome and, the downside of that is a lot of uh, anxiety. The upside is it lets you sort of question a lot of base assumptions and allows you to draw, uh, you know, fresh conclusions to maybe uh, problems that a more experienced entrepreneur wouldn't even would would just like wouldn't even think about trying to solve differently. 
than they've been solved before. I mean, you, you, so you've touched on a, a quite a few things there that, that we often talk about with entrepreneurship. So things like imposter syndrome, for example, and this notion of kind of feeling uncomfortable. So going into a project and perhaps thinking you, you shouldn't be doing it because you don't know enough about business. And so many people feel like that. So what, what would you say to those people? Just go for it. Well, I mean, there's a lot. Um, well, you know, once we started to have success, you know, we were, we were very aware of how we were unlike uh, what a quote unquote typical entrepreneur might be just in that we weren't trained and sort of, you know, our culture was, was came from a different, um, a different direction. But I mean, I, I, I really love the world of business and I, and I, I really, I, I, I've always been curious about it and I've read books, but like, um, I really found it, um, found it exciting and found it to be a way that you could have a, a real significant impact and being a leader is, is, is such an amazing way to shape people and, and ideas. Um, and so what we came to think was, you know what, we, we want people like us. And by that, we mean maybe people who did not intend to be entrepreneurs, but who would be good at it or whose ideas need to become organizations to be successful. We would love to be the kind of role model for the other path. You know, what we have found alienating about entrepreneurship was that it seemed to be about um, building as big a business as possible, trying to get as wealthy as possible, trying to grow as fast as possible. And we we more wanted to super serve an audience that we felt no one was paying attention to. Uh, for us, that was creative people. Um, and, and especially in the mid-2000s, that was not an audience that people were building products for. And... Um, and so, yeah, so it was just like, this, this seems like the way to have the biggest impact. So a lot of what we ended up thinking about in becoming, say, a public benefit corporation, which is a, a for-profit company that is legally required to balance financial interests with producing a positive benefit to society, for all those, we were thinking, how do we build a bridge to somewhere to where you can say, I am a, I'm a person that wants to have an impact, I'm going to do that through business, but I'm also going to factor in um, you know, other sorts of values and, and, uh, and, and how to make that a path that isn't weird, isn't like the strange path, but is an increasingly uh, normal one and, and one that um, entrepreneurs can self-select into if they feel alienated by the kind of business environment and the cultural expectations that seem to come with it. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, you look at Kickstarter now and just how accessible it is to so many people and so many creatives and different backgrounds. I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, in the world before Kickstarter, I mean, even, even us using the word, the word creator to describe uh, someone who starts a Kickstarter project, the use of that word to describe a user on the internet was Kickstarter. Like we, we created that term um, and we hadn't, we, we really struggled with what to call people because we wanted to call people artists, but we knew that this was a wider swath than traditional artists that we were thinking of a technologist. We were thinking of, uh, you know, a certain kind of entrepreneurship when we started Kickstarter. So we thought, what is that, what is that category of person? And so the, the term we ended up using finally after years of debate was creator and creator felt strange to us because that, that had like a godlike term in my mind. Like that, that was the context I was used to seeing that word in. So even the idea that like creative people are called creators and they are a customer class on the internet for which products exist and people market to them. 
Like that didn't happen before Kickstarter. When, when we were trying to raise money from investors, they would say, well, these are starving artists for a reason. Why would any people aren't going to give these people money? Like this is a, this is a business for people that like have no hope. So what's the point here? And there was just a, just a real lack of understanding and appreciation for what it means to be a, you know, a non-blockbuster creative person. And, and in the world before Kickstarter, people just thought they're blockbuster people and they're starving artist people. And that was it. And how many, I mean, you touched on investors there for Kickstarter. Was it fully funded by investors or were there any kind of principles that we know now about Kickstarter that actually went into it? Um, well, at first, um, you know, the first funders were um, friends and family who were largely creative people themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, musicians, comedians, publishers, um, they, they were among the very first investors. And so that was like a friends and family money to get the site built, which took a long time. Um, and then after we launched, um, about three months after we were live, Kickstarter did a series A um, and took really our only institutional investor then, which was Union Square Ventures and, and Fred Wilson uh, in New York City. But our series A was less than a million dollars raised and it was us you know union square ventures and about 15 angel investors people like jack dorsey um and uh and you know but we we got profitable off of that fairly quickly um 14 months after kickstarter launched we were operating in the black and that came from having a, a business model from the beginning taking five percent from successfully funded projects and we really focused on staying small we, we really saw our profitability as our freedom that and it was, it was different layers of freedom. One, one was that it meant we didn't have to raise money so that we didn't have to listen to take other people's orders. You know, that, that venture money we raised is such a small amount. We're like a rounding error for all of those people. So it, the, the strings it came with were very slight. And from the beginning, we said we never wanted to sell the company or try to go public. So there, we already put like a, a different expectation on it. Um, and, but you know, the other, the other reason to try to focus on profitability, um, and staying small is just knowing how hard it is to make a good decision and, and knowing how much harder it is when you're facing an, an existential question of like, we will die if this doesn't work. And, you know, I had been in companies that had operated in that way before we certainly could, you know, we'd had moments like that and you could feel just how much harder it is to think clearly at those moments. So I always thought about, uh, you know, our profitability as a way to ensure good decision-making and, and just to like, let us approach, you know, all the challenges and opportunities of the business in our best possible sort of mood. Um, um, and so, but, you know, really, even, even though we rose up during the internet era where everyone was told to chase hyper growth, um, our focus was never on that. Our focus was always on growing our reputation with the creative community, seeing the long term. You know, not 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 making short term decisions, not trying to like drive growth numbers in a way that might um, you know hurt the, the the loyalty people feel to you as a platform, and to always just be very clearly bound to what our core customer, which was creative people, what they wanted and what they needed. And so we, we very much operated almost like a, a you know, a, a company mirror of what an art of how an artist might approach their career, you know, very similar kind of spirit in Kickstarter. And, and all of that was intentional. It was just like, this is what, 
This is what the people we're serving are about. This is also what we're about because of that alignment that's going to make this, you know, really work for people. It all sounds very carefully considered and, and managed, but were there any unanticipated consequences of the innovations in Kickstarter? Well, I mean, we had, you know, you would have a major crisis every four months like clockwork. Um, inevitably would happen during holidays. Um, whenever, there's a, whenever there's a holiday weekend, something would go wrong. Literally, literally there was like... So we started keeping track. It was like six in a row every holiday. It's like, whoa, how did how did something go wrong? Yeah, sure. There were all kinds of problems. I mean, and one thing to say is that I think we did think about, and the company still does think about things this carefully. And there's a tremendous benefit to that. There's also real pain to that, which is it's slower. Which is like everyone says, "Hey, let's just do the thing that every other company does in this moment," and yet you, as the leader, are saying, "No, I don't think that's us." And you're not always certain about that. You know, it, it can be hard to articulate that. You can have a gut feeling that this is not what we should do, but making an argument um, for that is hard and, and at some point. And, and there's also the challenge of like the outside world is, is telling a different story of what it means to be successful. And even as like we were TechCrunch's startup of the year one year, beating out Twitter, Uber, all these companies. And and even while that happened, like I had, I had a lot of imposter syndrome and I had a lot of doubts about, you know, we're taking a slow growth path. We're not raising lots of venture money, but at the same time this is happening, our competitors are raising tens of millions of venture money from the biggest investors in the world. Every media outlet is talking about hyper growth and pushing that idea. And yet we're here saying like, now that's not us. That's not the right path. And, so certainly I have these moments where you're like, how sure are we of this? You know, what if we are the suckers who are wrong? And so th there was plenty of doubt. And, and, and that doubt gets triggered by the outside world. It gets triggered by competitors. And it also gets triggered by employees who, you know, employees will want the company to succeed. They'll want us to, to be aggressive in certain ways. And so there's, there, even as now in retrospect, it sounds like, look at this foolproof, you know, plan, like it, you really have to make an argument for it and, um, and, and convince people that there is value in pursuing long-term value. And that, um, you know, when you get in a position where your direct competitors are, you know, cutting their fees and doing whatever they can to drive prices. And then your own community team wants to start matching that and changing your rules to meet this external sales environment, even though, you know, you've never done that before. You just reach these these tough sort of decision points where it's like we could chase we could chase what seems like we need to do to stay competitive, but also that creates a new world for us afterwards that we'll always have to do that kind of thing potentially. So what's the right thing? Do you hold the line and lose some business now, but hope the market stays the way you want it to? Or is it too big of a risk? And so you face those sorts of things all the time where yes, there is this like theoretical value of we don't want to, you know, we don't want to discount our fees because we have a, a low price point product anyway. Um, you know, the team asks you this question five times a week for three months and, you know, you start second guessing yourself. So it's, it's not to imply a, a infinite smooth sailing by any stretch, but I do think that, um, you know, there is a, 
there, there are a couple moments, especially sort of those, those crisis moments where you're pushed into a corner um, and you choose the harder path and, and it pays off, you know, over and over I found in sacrifice in, in crises that when the company was willing to sacrifice, when we would shut down a line of our business, when we would give up money, when we would, you know, pay for something that it seemed like a company shouldn't pay for, um, the community would give you credit and they would say, okay, we can see that you're trying to do the right thing here. And we can tell because you gave something up. Um, but when you try to get through a sacrifice just by an empty statement and not actually change anything, that's just some bullshit that's going to catch up with you. And, spe- and speaking about uh, crisis management, how, how do you feel about the current situation with COVID-19 in terms of the effect on entrepreneurs? Um, well, I think it's going to vary. Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, as a leader, this is like a wartime, you know, a warlike experience. Yeah. You know, I think people who are entrepreneurs during this time, there's a kind of a PTSD is probably an, an overly strong word, but a, you know, a, a kind of emotional experience that will really stick with you out of this. Um, you know, I, I coach CEOs. I, I have, you know, very good friends in those roles. And yeah, we're now in like three months straight of uh, one of my best friends who's runs a, a coffee business um, told me yesterday that uh, every day he is making an existential decision on behalf of him or somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, does this person have a job or not? Do we keep working with this place or not? You know, and all of these things have this like life and death it, for somebody, life and death implications. And that just every day is like that now. And, and he just gotten used to it. Um, so it's a, you know, I think entrepreneurs and leaders are carrying a lot right now. And, and, you know, and, and I think those are people that are, I mean, I feel for them, but I do think those are people that are, are well equipped to carry, uh, to carry that kind of uncertainty. I mean, the job to get this far, the job has already demanded that of you to some extent. Um, and, and now something even greater. So, you know, I, I think for those in leadership roles, they have my compassion, um, and, and the world needs them. The world needs those people desperately right now. Um, especially in the U S um, I worry about entrepreneurship. Um, already in the past 40 years, the entrepreneurship rates in America per capita are half what they used to be. Like it is already a death of entrepreneurship in America. Um, because of just how large the the, the, the big players are, how much industry consolidation there is. Um, and, and so already small business was dying in America. Um, I think this is an apocalypse for it. Um, you know, all the local businesses are really struggling during this time. The major chains uh, have been what everyone has relied on as basic infrastructure in the U S there was very little done to protect those small businesses. There's nothing done to protect, you know, rent. And already those are things that we're in trouble. So I, I think in the U S we're heading for a, uh, an extinction level event um, for a lot of small businesses. Um, you know, is there a world, you know, you know, the funny part of this, of course, is that there's more money swimming around than ever before. Uh, this, is, this is the funny truth at this moment. The world is on fire and rich people have more money than ever. And they're looking around saying, oh, there's, there's not enough really to invest in. You know, maybe now they, they have thought there's something worth investing in since COVID because the world went on clearance temporarily. Um, um, all the world's assets went on, went on clearance. But yeah, but all this money just sitting on the sidelines while our, our, our governments struggle with funding, while our, um, you know, our, our social contract with one another is so frayed. But once again, we're, we're, we're richer than ever. 
Um, so, you know, we need, there's going to be a big gap. There's going to be a big gap between, you know, in between who has ownership and who has control um, of the businesses serving society and who are basically their clients and customers. And, um, and, and I think that this is going to lead to, you know, further levels of inequality in, in many societies uh, after COVID. Um, I think, you know, the UK, you know, protecting businesses and what Denmark did, I think the most extreme version of protecting businesses, I think those things are, well, those will allow for that small business community to come back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but for a lot of small business owners, I know it's like, do I, do I want to still run a business anymore? You know, like I spent all this time building this. Now it's almost dead or, you know, it's quasi dead. Do I really want to rebuild this before rebuild this again, knowing what it took to get here? It's a, you're going to need to be encouraged um, and, and have some kind of carrot other than like you don't have to have a boss uh, to get people to keep doing that. I think Cause this is a this experience is a is a traumatic one. Yeah, absolutely. And now would be a good time for people to read your book. This could be our future. What, what prompted you to write the book? Um, well, I stepped down as CEO of Kickstarter almost three years ago. And during my time as CEO, I, I'd given a talk first at Web Summit about that. It was about watching my neighborhood in New York City change. Uh, I lived in the Lower East Side in New York for almost 20 years. And, um, and I watched the neighborhood gentrify. And in particular, a moment, there was a, a, a bar, a, a punk bar called Mars Bar that had been there for 30 some years. It was like center of the punk scene it got torn down and replaced by a bank. And what was crazy was this, this, this same bank, there were four other of the exact same brands within a 15 minute walk of that same corner. And in like the East Village, Lower East Side, there were like five of these one bank and they were pushing out local landmarks um, and just banks were proliferating. And so as someone who lived in the neighborhood, I started to research it. I wanted to find out what was going on and learned that the number of bank branches in New York City had increased by a thousand between the mid 2000s and the mid 2010s, and came to realize that all those banks had once been small businesses of New Yorkers run by their fellow New Yorkers. And the reason that those banks were in those locations was a form of like brand advertisement and like, and it's real estate speculation. And that it just made so clear how investors looked at cities and looked at communities and looked at the world as just a portfolio to buy, sell, and trade. And me living next door to this place that got torn down and replaced by a bank because it made so enough money, like what I thought didn't matter. What the neighborhood needed didn't matter. All that mattered was this financial valuation behind it. And so this led me to this, I don't know, this, this theory that the world was operating according to a belief in what I called financial maximization, the idea that the rational choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And that we had all just adopted this belief that if the choice was the one that made the most money, that it was the right option and that things would work out. And that yes, there are quote unquote externalities, but those things pay for themselves if you optimize in this kind of way. Um, and so I wrote a book exploring the history of that idea, um, which I, I contend is, is only about 50 or 60 years old. It, it arrived in the 1970s, um, really being enacted, and it has its roots in game theory and um, earlier ideas of, in philosophy. And what I argue in the book is that 
our focus on financial growth has been rational and and has been wise in many ways. Um, However, uh, financial value is not the only rational value that we can grow. And we've been using money as a proxy for everything that is good. Uh, And it's gotten us into such huge problems, you know, where we're focusing on how do we maximize this quarter's returns and to justify that people lose their jobs, communities get decimated, companies move offshore, lots of behaviors that are negative towards that society, but yet are justified by a, you know, by a, a, a financial outcome. And, and my belief is that these decisions only make sense because we've settled on a very limited definition of self-interest. We view our self-interest uh, as being what now me wants and needs, what ourselves right in this moment need. In the West, especially, we have a short-term individualistic definition of need. And, and so I, I, I believe, in, and in the book, I introduced a theory that, and a framework that, that activates this. Uh, but I, I believe that our self-interest is not just the space of now me. It's four dimensions. It's now me, what I want to need right now. It's future me what the older, wiser version of me who becomes real or not real by the choices I make moment to moment, my now us, the people, all the friends, family, coworkers who I care about, who depend on me and who I depend on them, and future us, that same us and, and our kids, but everyone in 20 years from now, the world those people will inherit. And that every decision we make leaves a footprint in each of these spaces, now me, future me, now us, future us. Now, the first time I visualized this, it was as a simple two-by-two matrix with each of these boxes. And I thought, what is this a picture of? And I wrote next to it, beyond near-term orientation. This simple two-by-two graph was a way to help me see beyond this now-me place where I was trapped. And as I looked at that description, I realized it was an acronym for BENTO. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is a BENTO box. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Japanese lunch with four compartments and a lid lets you eat a variety of dishes without... Uh, getting too full. And, and there's this Japanese dieting philosophy called Hadahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So bentoism is the same idea, but for our self-interest, our values and our choices, a map that lets you see the impact of your decisions and the value that, that can be created, not just for you individually in this moment, up for what your future self needs and what the people who depend on you need. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that it's this linchpin shift of how we define self-interest, expanding the perimeter of our self-interest from just the individualistic short-termism to including the us and including the near future of, of how our decisions will impact our own lives, that that is what allows us to really level up our thinking and to level up the the consciousness of the world. And and in a world where we see self-interest, according to what I believe is closer to the truth of it, um, all kinds of other changes within happen. And things that we now think of of as externalities to a business, we would actually be able to map them um, and see how they impact us. And this would create a a map to new ways of of creating value. Um, And one example I would give of this really in action uh, is with Adele, the, the pop star Adele. And in 2014, Adele uh, went on tour. And w- when Adele goes on tour, you know, like, like all major artists, her tickets immediately sell out. And they go up on secondary ticketing websites and fans have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars more to see them play. 
Um, Adele, being a working class, you know, South London artist, wasn't wasn't cool with this, and so found a startup based in the UK called Songkit that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to her as an artist. And so they used this algorithm to identify the top 30 percentile Adele fans in each market, allowing them to buy a ticket at a cheap base value, uh, not putting any restrictions on tickets, but but on the theory that if they optimize for uh, the loyalty of the fans, it would produce a different environment and a different kind of result. Um, and these shows ended up working super well. But what you can imagine here is that Adele did charge it for the tickets. So Adele satisfied her financial needs. So the show's operated in the black. So that's Adele satisfying her own now me need. But the shows were maximizing and optimizing for loyalty and a communal experience, a now us need. And so Adele here had a quite sophisticated transaction where mathematically she is solving a financial minimum while optimizing for a non-financial maximum, right? She's trying to engender loyalty with a core audience base. And she's thinking of that as the value she's creating. And she's also seeing that this is in her self-interest. For her to make less money now and instead focusing on creating loyalty with her fans is absolutely in her self-interest, right? Those people might, might spend more money with her lifetime. And so, you know, this might look altruistic, but it is a selfish choice. But what this shows, what this shows is that when we act selfishly, quote unquote, selfishly in such a way, seeing all of these dimensions of our self-interest, we are far more successful. We're far more successful. It's not that you are being the Dalai Lama by thinking about the future or thinking about other people. You are still helping yourself. In fact, you are actually helping yourself to an even greater degree. It's just simply breaking um, just sort of the mythology of how we've defined self-interest today. Today, we think now me is, 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 self, is, is self-oriented and everything else is altruistic. And I, I just think that's false. Wow, I mean, I mean that is it's fascinating, isn't it? And and in addition to people uh, reading about this in the book, obviously, there's going to be enterprise educators. There's going to there's going to be people hearing this who want to actually teach this and embed this in maybe enterprise education or elsewhere. So, is there a, a resource? Is there anywhere people can go to as well as the book to learn more about this? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I teach this often. Um, so there's a site, bentoism.org, that teaches the framework, that teaches you how to like discover and express your, your values using it, that teaches you how to make decisions using this matrix. Yeah. Um, so yeah, bentoism.org. Um, I also teach workshops. And right now I'm doing three free workshops a week because there is so much interest. Wow. Um, where I get on Zoom calls with people. I teach them how to build their values. We go through exercises together. And there's a weekly ritual we all do um, where we use the bento to sort of uh, generate our to-do list for the week ahead. And, and as, so we think about our priorities, not just according to the now me of like, what are my errands, but also what does my future self want me to do, you know, to become the older, wiser version of me, the ultimate version of me. What does that person tell me? And so you, you, the more you think about this and the more you go through journaling exercises to try to express those voices, um, the more they, you can really hear them. And, um, and so there's a community of people actively doing this. I am like, I would say I, I am almost full time uh, on teaching this and, and, and advising organizations and, and putting in the hands of people. Um, you know, I am just, 
I have just seen over and over its efficacy. Um, and I felt it in my own life. And what's funny is the book came out last fall and before COVID, um, I was having to spend a lot of time just trying to argue to people that our notion of self-interest was limited. And that was a, that was a tough argument for people, for people to take. They didn't totally, some people saw it, other people didn't. Since COVID, um, I am overwhelmed with people reaching out, wanting to understand um, themselves better using this frame. The, the notion that there is this unknown space that we've been neglecting is now, you know, so painfully clear. Um, so especially in this post-crisis state, like I have felt the amount of interest and in people searching um, and people finding a real connection uh, just to be remarkable. Um, and so it is a it is a framework that is suited for this moment. And and a lot of what I talk about now is the importance of self awareness in a crisis. You know, and when the when the zombie hordes come, uh, everybody runs. Uh, but while everybody runs from the scary thing, a much smaller number number of people run towards something with a plan. In a movie, it's normally Tom Cruise, <laughs> right? And so what does Tom has? Tom has self awareness. Uh -huh. Tom has a bento. Tom's not just responding to what's in front of him. He is thinking about that future self. He is thinking about other people and that is integrated into his thinking in a way that it's, it's instinctual. And that's what the bento gives us. And, and so even in like a pandemic where it seems like uh, self-awareness is, is a, is a luxury like Prada in a pandemic. In reality, it's in these moments, especially when the world is incoherent as our world increasingly is, that this kind of self-awareness and this kind of self-coherence is like, is the only way to not be blind. It's the only way to not just be reactive. And so to me, this is a basic toolkit. Um, and I, I, you know, in the book, it, this is presented as like within 30 years, all of this is going to be so obvious. This is, this will be the most boring conversation anyone will have ever listened to 30 years from now, because I think that that's how long it takes for new ideas to become invisible. It takes 30 years for a new idea to become fully integrated. And then everyone is like, that was never an idea. That's always been here. And that, that needs to be the goal here. This bentoism, the notion of a expanded view of self-interest can't be the indie feel good hit like Kickstarter was. This needs to be a, a mainstream blockbuster that changes the world. And, and, and I believe that. Hello. Oh, hello. It's all right. You're there. It, it just cut out for a second, but you're there. Can you? Can you? Yeah, my my, my my Yeah, my AirPod. My AirPods ran out of juice right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I'm here. I'm here. So, so I mean, like I said, there's going to be there's going to be so many people who want to know more. And you've mentioned the free workshops you're doing. How do people find out about those? Yeah, there's just a simple URL: um, bitly bit.ly/weeklybento. Um, if you put in your email address, I'm going to send out an invite for one um, today, but I, I send out invites on Fridays or Saturdays and those happen, um, Sundays, Mondays and Wednesdays. And people are come from around the world. Um, I mean, last week it was like Pakistan, Brazil, the UK, France, you know, um, Egypt, like everywhere people come from everywhere. And, uh, and normally in one of these sessions, it's like, you know, between 30 and 50 people 
it's completely interactive. It's all interactive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a real, com- it's a real community. And it's just been like post COVID me just trying to create a space for what I felt like I needed. And, and it's, it has a real momentum. It is amazing. And, and this output that you've seen and all this interest after the book, do you now have ideas for an, another book? I do. Um, I do. I was, I was in the midst of beginning um, that next book, which just, which will be like case studies of spending time with people that are trying to make these kinds of changes and talking to those folks. I'm still doing that work, but you know, in addition to everything else, I'm a parent and since COVID, um, you know, taking care of, of my child has become a bigger priority. So, and, and writing has become harder. So I think that's a project that goes on hold for a bit. Um, but a lot of what I'm doing is, is just working on Bentoism with individuals and, and with organizations. So I just started a, a fellowship with the Drucker Institute, started by the business writer Peter Drucker, who had a big influence on me as a CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have a fellowship with them that's going to be about, about applying Bentoism to the needs of companies. And they advise like Walmart, Google, like giant, giant companies. And so I, I'm hoping to get an insight into how those mega firms operate and, and that maybe I can offer some value in terms of a, you know, a new framework to add their, to their toolkit. Wow. It's incredible. I mean, thank you so much for talking to us and it's the book and, you know, the workshops and everything else. It's just phenomenal. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out. And, and it really, if people are interested, come join. Like it's, um, I, I, I hope you can hear the, 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 the genuine enthusiasm that, that I have and and, uh, and you are really everyone would be more than welcome to, to come be a part of it. Yancy Strickler there, co-founder of one of the biggest platforms in the world for startups, Kickstarter. And definitely check out Bento as well. It's really fascinating stuff. Uh, we're so grateful to Yancy for joining us on our pad, uh, podcast this time. Don't forget... GMU Works Enterprise and Entrepreneurship have always got stuff going on that you can get involved with. For example, we've got brand new startup schools taking place online this August that are free for students and graduates. You can re-watch our recent three-hour Entrepreneurship Day event. Loads of guest speakers on there as well. You can nominate now for the DME Works uh, Student and Graduate Enterprise Awards. We've got TEDx on the way. There's so much going on. If you go on Google, just put in DME Works Enterprise and Entrepreneurship. DME Works Enterprise and Entrepreneurship, and you'll find all the stuff we've got going on. Uh, on our link tree link there as well. So do get involved. Thank you so much for listening to our latest podcast. My name is Simon. Thanks again to Yancy and we'll see you again next time. This is the DMU Works Enterprise Podcast.